LMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding. The street is full of corruption. It is baked in to every aspect of our society. 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This is written over 100 years ago. All right, folks, it's Steve. It's a new year. We've got a new intro. I hope you like it. Thank you, Jules, for making that. Today, folks, we're going to talk about revolution slash counter-revolution and kind of understanding the arc of revolution. And it's not going to be just a lesson, although I'm going to show you some links. I'm going to talk to you about some stuff um, that I feel is important. It's also going to really be focused heavily. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's going to be heavily focused on uh, ensuring that we have, how do I put this? An understanding of what happens afterwards, right? What happens afterwards? And um, I think it's important to understand that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. For every, um, when there's a power void, there's usually something that comes in to fill the void. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've done a lot of research. I mean, so much research. The problem isn't having a bunch of factoids that I could answer on a game of Jeopardy. The real issue is synthesizing all of it to make an analysis that makes sense, right? That really helps people fully understand. And one of the big deals for me when, I guess it was about 18 months ago, something like that, maybe two, maybe it's, maybe it's a full two years at this point now that I'm thinking about it. Definitely 18 months ago, for sure, though, at least. Um, got a group of people, about 12 people together. And we were going to create a podcast called The S Word. And it wasn't just for socialism. It was also for struggle. And the whole point of the podcast, and, and you would be, I'm not going to mention their names. Uh, it didn't work out. Maybe someday we'll reconstitute The S Word and get it back in motion. Because we got about six episodes recorded that never made the light of day because we just for whatever reason couldn't get them produced in an event the idea though was to understand the arc of revolution and by arc just know that there's there's a problem going on right whatever that problem is wherever it is the people are dissatisfied with the conditions they're dealing with and there's a lot of people that have to become really truly disaffected and, and discouraged and disillusioned and angry enough to make a revolution come to be. So that kind of goes like an ebbing, you know, like rising tide, if you will, of discontent. And once you reach some sort of point of, you know, you, you reach a point, I can't even give you the right spec. Is it 3%? Is it 50%? Is it 90%? I, I don't know. I really don't know. And history doesn't show us very well either. That's the tough part. There's a point where a revolution happens. But then, once you have your revolution, you have to know that just like a tide, you have a big wave that comes in, and you have the riptide that pulls back. You have the counter-revolution. And so, and I was thinking to myself that spurred this on, there's just not enough talk about what happens after the revolution. Assuming, you know, of course you have this great revolution and everybody's on board and whatnot, which isn't the case typically, 
typically there's a huge amount of people that are not for the revolution. If you, they were for the revolution, it would have happened. Right. And so you have a large group of people that are comfortable with their benefits or their uh, blessings or the privilege of class and some of these more class centric societies, et cetera. And, and ultimately understanding the, the role of the counter-revolutionary and understanding that why is it that you never see a real genuine socialist world, except for like in Cuba or, you know, maybe, maybe you see it in like what turned into Vietnam. Um, I mean, there are, there are instances where there's socialism like circumstances, but in each one of them, they're typically, you know, you can kind of point to authoritarianism and they say, well, wait a minute, hold on. Socialism isn't authoritarianism. But then you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, then why are almost all the leaders authoritarians? Why does it always come out that way? And I just thought about it. And, it, you know, I just thought about it. I've been thinking about it for years. There's always a counter-revolution. And I'm going to go start our talk at the French Revolution a little bit. And I see Wesley in the crowd. I'm sure Wesley will provide dozens of nuggets inside the uh, inside the uh, comment area for things because these are areas that I'm sure he's familiar with, with Rousseau and some of the other Enlightenment thinkers and, and so forth. But I just want to start with Robespierre. I don't want to get into the whole Battle of Bastille, the you know Bastille Day, the taking of the Bastille and all that stuff. I don't want to get into the bread riots. I don't want to get into all that stuff. I just want to talk about once the revolution had happened and they made Robespierre the quote unquote leader, if you will, of the new France, of this new enlightenment period, this new revolutionary government, um, the mountain that he had been part of, if you will. Uh, it's where we get our left wing, right wing because of the halls of their uh, government. You know, you had the, uh, what they call the mountain on the one side. And then you had the, um, I'm screwing this up right off the bat. They had too much of the, um, the conservative kind of harsh, cruel people on the other side. Um, but Robespierre, when he took over, he was called the incorruptible. And he had always been seen as this like guy of great moral fiber, great, uh, wisdom. He was a man of the people, uh, etc. But Robespierre, as the revolutionary government was challenged by, you know, counter-revolutionary forces, royalists, if you will, that were defending King Louis and so forth from the French Revolution, he got more and more paranoid, right? And people were afraid to talk because there was family members that were both revolutionary on one side and on the other side, they were royalists on the other. Families were split down the middle. And because they had been born into this real hardcore class-based society where you had the church, which was the top dog, you had the, the uh, elite uh, rulers, the nobles and stuff like that. And then you had the peasants and there was a bunch of different mini classes in there. Everybody had their station in life and they were expected to adhere to their station in life. There was a lot of, you know, suffering. There was a lot of famine that was going on in France at the time. 
Uh, we learn at that time that the government, you know, could have done a lot more for its people, but chose not to for a variety of reasons, which ended up getting Louis, you know, taken out of the picture. Thank you very much. Great, great point right there. Um, I'm doing this because what I'm talking about here, I, I, I believe me when I say this, a lot of what I want to talk about could be done in some really, really cool deep dive kind of podcasty um storytelling which i'd like to be able to do at some point which is why the s word failing really still crushes my soul that our we weren't able to pull that off um but ultimately robespierre fell into paranoia everybody was suspect everybody was someone that could be working for the royalists or working behind the scenes to stab robespierre in the back so this brought on the reign of terror and everybody was suspected of being counter-revolutionary that wasn't firmly entrenched in the, the new, the new France, the new revolution, the, um, they, they basically were beheaded. And, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read Stan, uh, Wesley's thing. Jean Rousseau is large cause of many of the fallacies that plague economics today is responsible for creating the false historical framework now institutionalized that we broadly call Eurocentrism. All right. Now I'm not going to go, I don't want to stay in this section too long. So Wesley, with all due respect, that's probably the most we're going to get in that. The point of it was that they had a revolution. Now it was a bourgeois revolution, meaning that wasn't from the bottom up. It was kind of like a middle to top down. Okay. They didn't want the church having say so in their lives. They didn't want all these things. So they basically took the country back. They took the country and decided to make a change. Um, but the royalists kept fighting back. They never went away. So your revolution, your, your idea of revolution is taking over the government, changing society, whatever. And you think, wow, it's an event. Wrong. Wrong. It's really kind of a, a long arcing thing. Okay. The long arcing thing that, that never quite dies, never quite goes away. And you can see it in the United States, even uh, from the American Revolution to Civil War. I mean, you still got the same factions fighting each other, Democrat, Republican. Uh, you know, I, I don't want government involvement. I do want government involvement. These two factions are sort of revolution, counter-revolution, even now today in society. We're still paying the price for that. We have never, ever achieved what we could achieve. But going back to France, which was the, you know, kind of like the catalyst or genesis for much of the future goals of revolution, especially Marx and Engels, who really were devoted to learning about the French Revolution. I mean, even Kropotkin, who is an anarchist, wrote heavily about the French Revolution. And, and they all looked at this. And, and really what happened, just so you see the, the way this works, you have this great revolution. Leader of said revolution loses their fucking mind. And they end up killing them after they've killed a bunch of people. They went ahead and reinstalled the monarchy after Robespierre was put to death. Okay. So Robespierre put to death by his own tools of murder, if you will, the guillotine. And they reinstall, reinstate the monarchy. Shortly thereafter, though, of course, you know the story with Napoleon Bonaparte. He comes in and says, fuck your monarchy. 
I'm going to show you how we can be great around the world. We'll make France great again kind of thing. Okay. It never goes away. And so as everyone became afraid of Napoleon, Napoleon took over the world, basically. Napoleon got too big for his britches, if you will. And even that fell apart. And he was banished to you know, some island in Italy to live out the rest of his life. But all of these things, every last one of the Washington capitalists, you like that, don't you? It's a Washington capitals, but yes, it's hilarious. Um, but if you think about it, right, France was embroiled in nonstop internal strife, nonstop internal strife. And, and you look at, uh, you look over there at the Haitian revolution, which followed on the heels of the Russian, or, I mean, excuse me, followed on the heels of the French revolution. Okay. Inspired, if you will, by the French revolution, where you had uh, Toussaint Louverture, who was kind of the Barack Obama of revolutionaries that kept selling out his people, trading up just so he could keep a higher up place in Haitian society. Then he got dimed on by Dessalines. And Dessalines went and slaughtered the living hell out of all the Europeans, got them the hell out of there, and really, in, in essence, became the king, if you will, the father of modern-day Haiti. Um, but if you look back at that, it was like constant revolution, counter-revolution, revolution, counter-revolution. It's not like these things are an event that just die in one moment and then, hey, we had a revolution, now everything's good, right? And you look and you see, even under Lenin, there was a lot of people that died during that time period. And so then you see under Stalin, there was a lot of people that died. Now, it doesn't mean that they were responsible for it. It's just a point of revolution, counter-revolution. You had the kulaks, these, these guys that, were, that owned property and in Russia that basically intentionally didn't let the fields do what they were supposed to do and create the food that they needed to create and created famine. Okay. This was kind of a reaction to the concept of private property, et cetera. Okay. But once again, counter-revolutionary forces. So when you look at whatever the future state that you think you're getting with a revolution, whether you're going to have a socialism or you're going to have communism, or you're going to have anarchism, or you're going to have capitalism or whatever, there's always a fundamental counter-revolution that occurs. It, it's just inevitable. It's, it's, it's one of those things that is always there, unless you have 100% agreement. And, and I think to myself, I don't think people think about this stuff. I really don't. I, I really don't think people think about this stuff at all. And yet at the same time, we kind of need a revolution in this country, right? We, we really kind of need one to serve the people. And yet you, you get into this kind of quagmire of how many people are completely unaware of what is needed for people, for the regular people that, you know, are beneath them, if you will, in terms of haves and have nots or, and, and they're not moved to revolution. In fact, they would be resistant because maybe they've gone to school and they've gotten degrees and they've got things to, that they would lose if this happens. And so you've got a baked in, you know, group of people 
that want that will die that are willing to die to keep things as they are to maintain the status quo and you know as you come through in order to institute like a socialist revolution i mean the stuff I, I've got great stuff. I want to share some of these references that I have here. I'm going to, first of all, I'm just going to quickly read uh, the stuff about Robespierre. Hopefully this will provide some, that's too small, isn't it? Let's go ahead and make it bigger. I'm just going to read this first part here. Okay. I'm not going to read a whole lot. Maximilian Robespierre, 1758, 1794, was the leader of the 12 man committee of public safety elected by the national convention and which effectively governed France at the height of the radical phase of the revolution. The committee was among the most creative executive bodies ever seen, rapidly put into effect policies which stabilized the French economy and began the formation of the very successful French army. It also directed its energies against counter-revolutionary uprisings, especially in the south and the west of France. In doing so, it unleashed the reign of terror. Here, Robespierre, in his speech in February 5th, 1794, from which excerpts are given here, discuss the issue. The figures behind this speech indicate that in five months, from September 1793 to February 5th, 1794, the Revolutionary Tribunal in Paris convicted and executed 238 men, 31 women, and acquitted 190 persons. And then on February 5th, there were 5,434 individuals in the prisons in Paris awaiting trial. Um, so I want you to just realize it's like to consolidate democracy, to achieve the peaceable reign of the constitutional laws, we must end the war of liberty against tyranny and pass safely across the storms of the revolution, such as the aim of a revolutionary system that you have enacted. Your conduct then ought to also be regulated by the stormy circumstances in which the Republic is placed and the plan for your administration must result from the spirit of the revolutionary government combined with the general principles of democracy. Now, what is the fundamental principle of democratic or popular government that is the essential spring which makes it move? It is virtue. I am speaking of the public virtue which affected so many prodigies in Greece and Rome and which brought or ought to produce more, much more inspire, much more surprising ones in the Republican France of that virtue, which is nothing other than the love of country and of its laws. But as the essence of the Republic or of democracy is equality, it follows that the love of country necessarily includes the love of equality. It is also true that the sublime sentiment assumes a preference for the public interest over the particular interest, over every particular interest, hence the love of country presupposes or produces all the virtues for what are they other than that spiritual strength which renders one capable of those sacrifices? And how could the slave of avarice or ambition, for example, sacrifice his idol to his country? Not only is virtue the soul of democracy, it can exist only in that government. And it goes on deeper. Republican virtue can be considered in relation to the people and in relation to the government. It is necessary in both. When only the government lacks virtue, there remains a resource in the people's virtue. But when the people itself is corrupted, liberty is already lost. Fortunately, virtue is natural to the people, notwithstanding aristocratic prejudices. 
A nation is truly corrupted when having by degrees lost its character and its liberty, it passes from democracy to aristocracy or to monarchy. That is the de decrepitude and death of the body politic. But then by prodigious efforts of courage and reason, a people breaks the chains of despotism to make them into the trophies of liberty. When they, by the force of its moral temperament, it comes, as it were, out of the arms of the death to recapture all the vigor of youth. When by turns it is, a it is sensitive and proud, intrepid and docile, and can be stopped neither by impregnable ramparts nor by the innumerable armies of the tyrants armed against it, but stops of itself upon confronting the law's image, then if it does not climb rapidly to the summit of its destinies, that can only be the fault of those who govern it. Now, I, there's a lot more I can read and I'd like to read, but I'm not going to read. The point is, is that you come in with the greatest of intentions. But let's look for just a minute at the current thing with Greta and the homeboy Tate, who is attacking her. That asshole, this quote-unquote influencer, is a libertarian. He is the styled person, the anarcho-capitalist kind of guy who wants to just have as much as he wants to have and wants to have that surly, shitty, typical libertarian attitude that you see many of the so-called lefties in our movement that have migrated over to become righty apologists. Those folks out there have that same surly, kind of shitty, mocking kind of attitude that breeds hatred, not let's go ahead and join hands, let's go ahead and build a society. It's the kind of thing that creates hate. And hate can't sustain itself because what ends up happening is the more you build hate into it and the more people fight back against the hate and the more troubling the leadership becomes as they realize the counter-revolution is fighting back, the more death and bloodshed occur. And this goes on and on and on. Now, if you go to the next one, and this right here is very interesting. I want to read this. This is regarding an essential condition of the Bolsheviks. Um, success. So let's go ahead and bring that up. Most of the stuff I got from Marxist.org. So if you just feel like reading some stuff, by all means, go over there. It says, I think almost universally realized at present that the Bolsheviks could not have retained their power for two and a half months, let alone two and a half years, without the most rigorous and truly iron discipline in our party or without the fullest and unreserved support from the entire mass of the working class, that is, from all thinking, honest, devoted, and influential elements in it, capable of leading the backward strata or carrying the ladder along with them. The dictatorship of the proletariat means a most determined and most ruthless war waged by the new class against a more powerful enemy the bourgeoisie, whose resistance is increased tenfold by their overthrow. In other words, this is the counter-revolutionary force, folks, okay? Even if only a single country and whose power lies not only in the strength of the international capital, the strength and durability of their international connections, but also in the force of habit, in the strength of small-scale production, Unfortunately, small-scale production is still widespread in the world. And a small-scale production 
engenders capitalism and bourgeoisie continuously, daily, hourly, spontaneously, on a mass scale. All these reasons make the dictatorship of the proletariat necessary. And victory over the bourgeoisie is impossible without long, stubborn, and desperate life-and-death struggle, which calls for tenacity, discipline, and a single and inflexible will. Let me ask you real quick while I'm saying this. How many of you all can envision people who won't even withhold their vote for someone like a Joe Biden? Imagine anyone actually operating with long, stubborn, and desperate life-and-death struggle, which calls for tenacity, discipline, and a single inflexible will. Think about how many people are unwilling to even show up and do a most basic thing to support the revolution, to support an organization like Real Progressives even, but also in the force of habit, okay? These are things, what I'm showing you here, okay, is the point that most people, most people will not do any of the things needed to make any of this stuff happen. Most people will not do anything for anyone. Most people will not sacrifice Netflix time to help support sharing a video even or, or, or in any way, shape, or form help write an article or help build a website or help anyone organize home groups or build anything out. Everybody wants immediate gratification where they're just yelling and screaming. But look at this. All of these reasons make the dictatorship of the proletariat necessary. And victory over the bourgeoisie is impossible, impossible, folks, impossible without a long, stubborn, and desperate life and death struggle, which calls for tenacity, discipline, and a single and inflexible will. Remember that. Remember that, folks. I repeat, let's go here. The experience of the victorious dictatorship of the proletariat in Russia has clearly shown, even to those who are incapable of thinking or have had no occasion to give thought to the matter, that absolute centralization and rigorous discipline of the proletariat are an essential condition over the to have victory over the bourgeoisie. Look at that. Look at that. This is often dwelt on. However, not nearly enough thought is given to what it means and under what conditions it is possible. Would it not be better if the salutations addressed to the Soviets and the Bolsheviks were more frequently accompanied by a profound analysis of the reasons why the Bolsheviks have been able to build up the discipline needed by the revolutionary proletariat? Folks, discipline, 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 discipline. Think about how many people cannot even bother to share a live stream or show up and say good morning to their fellow comrades. Imagine what I'm talking about here. As a current of political thought and as a political party, Bolshevism has existed since 1903. Only the history of Bolshevism during the entire period, the arc of revolution, folks, the entire period of its existence can satisfactorily explain why it has been able to build up and maintain under the most difficult conditions, the iron discipline, the iron discipline, the fucking iron discipline needed 
for victory of the proletariat. I'm going to stop right there for a second. I want you to break out a mirror if you have one. And I want you to look in that mirror. Look in your mirror. And I want you to say to yourself, I do everything I can to ensure that left-wing or progressive causes are elevated. I am literally devoting myself to discipline to do this. Think about what I'm saying. If you can do that, you are a rare bird indeed because the most of the people that I look at, most of the people that I look at, they genuinely do not do any exhibit any of these traits. They're fiercely individualistic. They want to do their own thing. They want to be a star in their own sky. They want to be a big fish in a small pond. They have delusions of grandeur, okay? And they can't work with others and won't work with others. And even when they do work with others, they don't work with others in the discipline that is required. They just burn off energy spinning around like whirling dervishes in a teacup, okay? In the end, these things that I'm showing you here, this is straight from Vladimir Lenin, okay? So if you look here, as a current of political thought and as a political party, Bolshevism has existed since 1903. Only the history of Bolshevism during the entire period of its existence can satisfactorily explain why it's been able to build up and maintain under the most difficult conditions the iron discipline needed for victory of the proletariat. I'm going to read a little bit more because I love this stuff. The first questions to arise, how is the discipline of the proletariat's revolutionary party maintained? How is it tested? How is it reinforced? First, by class consciousness of the proletarian vanguard and by its devotion to the revolution. How many of you guys honestly see people devoted to this stuff who quickly chase someone down? How many times do you see people literally literally doing this stuff. I mean, honest to God. No, you don't. It's always here by its devotion to the revolution. Proletarian vanguard and its devotion to the revolution. By its tenacity, self-sacrifice, and heroism. Second, by its ability to link up, maintain the closeted contact, and, if you wish, merge in a certain measure with the broadest masses of the working people. Look at that. Think about how factionalized we are. People quibbling over words and, yo, you're not left. Oh, we're the new left. Oh, you're not left enough. Oh, my God, that's wrong. Let me show you this weird thing on page 9,742 of this book that I read. Now you don't know, so you're full of shit. That's, that's the insanity that is our world, okay? That's the insanity on the world. No, 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 I Jesus Christ. Third, by the correctness of the political leadership exercised by this vanguard, by the correctness of its political strategy and tactics, provided the broad masses have seen from their own experience, they are correct. Without these conditions, discipline and revolutionary party really capable of being the party of the advanced class whose mission it is to overthrow the bourgeoisie and transform the whole of society, cannot be achieved. Without these conditions, all attempts to establish discipline 
inevitably fall flat and end up phrase-mongering and clowning. On the other hand, these conditions cannot emerge at once. They are created only by prolonged effort. Look at that. Prolonged effort and hard-won experience. Their creation is facilitated by a correct revolutionary theory, which in turn is not a dogma, but assumes final shape only in close connection with the practical activity of a truly mass and revolutionary movement. Okay. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead back to our next one, and I'm going to look at Mao momentarily. Mao, who had the cultural revolution and the great leap forward and all this stuff. The fact is, is that in the end, once again, it requires absolute commitment to the cause. Absolute commitment to the cause. Okay. And in the end, getting everybody to agree is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Unfortunately, you could give people all the truth you want to give them. In the end, ultimately, it's up to them to agree or not agree. And because there is so much factionalization, you see prolonged violence in many of these counter-revolutionary deals. Revolutions don't necessarily have to be violent to start, but that's just the start. Once the riptide of the counter-revolution comes through, that's when clashing begins, okay? And so discipline, we lack. Nobody's interested in it. Everybody wants to be the big fish in the small pond. Um, it's ultimately a real challenge because everybody's like, yeah, revolution. And they see pictures of people in the streets tearing down statues of the old gods and, you know, putting up new ones for the new gods and on and on and on. But at the end of the day, people I don't think really fully understand anything we're talking about, anything that we're talking about really comes down to discipline and really truly understanding how to get through. Unfortunately, and I see someone here said that, you know, joining political groups, DSA, Progs, Greens, speak to their economics policies person if they even have one. The problem is, is that it goes beyond economics. Economics is a starting point because if you don't understand economics, you're creating a bunch of false gods to begin with. And you can see that with some of the groups out there already today that are coming together, putting up public banking as a means of providing state-by-state uh, -state healthcare crap like that. No matter how many good plans or good ideas someone has, it doesn't change the fact that it doesn't work that way, okay? It just doesn't work that way, period. And um, it's very, very unfortunate, okay? Because things that sound real good typically aren't real good. Things that sound great typically have a very, very small warning label that you have to break out the, uh, the glasses and the microscope to read, all right? Some of them come with a blinding flash that says, hey, bad, bad shit ahead, right? Unfortunately, you're always stuck with the situation of telling the truth and you've got a large group of people that have been swept up into like almost like cult worship 
for fake things, but it's a lot of people doing it. And it's a lot of the cool kids doing it. So everybody wants to be a part of it, even if it's full of shit and it's wrong, right? So how do you balance the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of people's liberty, and at the same time create society so that it meets the people's needs? And my experience is, is that when you see DSA talking about making, for example, um, Liz Cheney, the Speaker of the House, something something not quite computing there right something not quite computing there and when you see them talking about supporting in essence the the anti railway strikes you say wait a minute hold on what are you talking about and if you've read any of lenin which i strongly encourage you to do because even if you don't like whatever lenin uh, supposedly said based on your U.S.-based education, um, maybe it would be good to hear what Lenin actually said. And everywhere along the line, he talks about discipline, and he pointed hardcore at this guy Kerensky, who was basically a DSA, social Democrat kind of person, that was willing to leave the capitalist class right intact, in power, and leave them in their spot, and then try to find a way for everybody else to kind of work within that, okay? That's not the discipline that Lenin's talking about. Lenin's talking about none of that shit, getting rid of class, getting rid of this ownership class, getting rid of all these types of arrangements, okay? And so as you move forward, you realize that each step in this process from Stalin and Lenin and Dessaline and Toussaint Louverture, the U.S. Revolution, the Civil War, uh, the French Revolution, etc. And there's tons of revolutions all over the place, folks. Dying empires and, you know, warlords and libertarian, you know, heaven or whatever. Uh, the, these kinds of things exist all over the place. There's a million examples of it. But in the end, what there isn't a million examples of is socialism being allowed to thrive without the counter-revolutionary force there, except for like places like Cuba. Cuba, who's outdoing us in many, many ways, okay? But we don't look at the whole picture. We think that being angry and righteously indignant is enough. And people just can't stand discipline. They can't stand the plan. They can't stand to think through a problem. And they get salty and shitty, right? When they're told they were wrong about something, when something wasn't correct. And they would rather just fight with you, facts be damned, okay? This is the reality of our world today. It's an anti-intellectual, I'm angry. But in order to sustain something, anger gets you through the door. But love is what's going to have to take it to make sure that everybody agrees at some level that you deserve nice things, that you deserve equality, that you deserve. And unfortunately, once the brain has been tainted, you've either got to deprogram that brain, decolonize that brain. Or as you've seen in the past, you end up with coup attempt after coup attempt after coup attempt and nonstop violence. So I wonder. I wonder, given the fact that 
most people will follow just simply the loudest voice. They won't necessarily, you know, if there's everybody over there, they just sort of get drawn over there, even if it's bullshit, even what they're saying is full of shit. Yeah, the herd's that way, right? This is how you end up with, hey, we'll just get a network of public banks to make the Green New Deal happen. Or, hey, we'll get a bank, a, a network of public banks and we'll do healthcare at the state level, right? This is what happens in the, the face, if you will, of truth and reality, right? Hey, we don't want to hear no, we can't. So we're going to go with whatever you say, yes, we can to do, even if it's wrong. Even if there's no hope and dope, so to speak, they're going to keep going because who are you to tell me it won't work? Thank you so much, Cyril. Really appreciate the support there. Um, I, I think to myself frequently, I, I feel like I'm a revolutionary. I really do. I want to see change at all costs and in my lifetime. Like I definitely want to plant some seeds so the kids have the shade of, you know, whatever. I get the, I get the reference, I get the analogy. I want to see it now, right? But what does that mean? Most Democrats are not willing to fight for anything other than their party. They're not willing to go down swinging for Medicare for all. They're not willing to go down swinging for a federal job guarantee. They're not willing to go down swinging for a Green New Deal, or as the leaders of the Democratic Party said, the Green Dream. The fuck, right? So this is where the bulk of the world, the bulk of our country resides, that votes anyway, inside this Democratic Party. And then you've got the Republican Party. I mean, I'm not worried about the parties as, as actual legal entities. I'm worried about the parties as identities for the people within them, okay? I'm not speaking of it in terms, because I don't believe that this party stuff is real. I think a lot of it is just a bunch of bullshit left to keep us thinking that we have some say over the world. It's kind of like a placebo to keep us fighting with each other about irrelevant things. They're fighting over one degree of separation. They're not, there's a whole 359 degrees that they leave out of the equation. There's only this one degree of separation. And it's very, very much a capitalist order, very, very much an oppressive order, but one has better bedside manners. So it's not real. Because when you hear what people want, the parties aren't representing that. They're trying to manufacture your consent. They're trying to manufacture you agreeing with them. And because you've been sucked into the party, you identify with the party, you defend the party, even if the party is wrong. Look no further than Ukraine with the Democratic Party. Okay. Look no further than the anemic response to the pandemic. Look no further than their lack of understanding. Look no further than any of that, right? So everything, all the policies that we put forward within the construct as it is today, all of them lead to maybe a more gentle oppression smoothing the edges of oppression it's not revolution and yet we will fight to the death over one degree of separation but we won't fight to the death outside of that to ensure that we have a good life to ensure that we have food and water as a right to make sure that we have health care as a right to make sure that we have shelter as a right we won't do it 
So when I think about people talking about revolution, we're talking literally, and I, again, I count myself amongst them, folks. I want to be clear. It's not me going, you, you, you. This is, hey, let's think through that. Let's think through that. Okay. And ultimately, in the end, in the end, we're getting nowhere fast, but we fought the good fight, didn't we? And everybody goes back home, has dinner, sends their kids to school the next day, whatever. Life goes on. This is the new norm. But the new norm that we are experiencing in this country is all violence. Every time a person is starving or doesn't get health care because they can't afford the copay or they can't afford whatever, every time they're put on the shelf or given lesser care because they don't have the means to pay for the right care, that's violence. It's a policy decision. So we're already dealing with counter-revolutionary oppression, if you will, right? We're dealing with the royalists, if you will, the defenders of the flag, the defenders of the, the borders that are on the map, right? The laws, because they hold, guess what? They hold rules and regulations, legalism above justice, legalism above effective governance, legalism above ensuring that everybody is okay and taken care of. Because in the end, they measure themselves not by how much they have, but the distance between themselves and the person below them, right? So as you try to gin up revolution, as you try to, you, it's almost impossible to gin up revolution. Revolution has to occur over a long period of time. Building up the discipline for a revolution takes a lot of effort and time. Or you just end up, with a January 6th bullshit that these fools did on the right. That all it amounted to was an excuse for the existing establishment to crack down on dissent. It didn't achieve anything. It didn't achieve shit. And when I try and explain to people that we need to build parallel institutions and we need to build the discipline, we need to work through that and educate each other and each one teach one and all that stuff. People just go right back over to the other places and go suckle back into the bullshit once again. I don't know whether it's a prophet hath no honor in his own hometown or everybody, you know, it's like, hey, I know you. So therefore contempt, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know. But in the end, I know that this subject is not talked about nearly enough. I know that all that is really talked about in the end really is the anger and let's let this volcano erupt. It's the no plan plan. And even some of those who out there say they have plans, you know, I don't trust them. Don't trust them. I've seen them in action. Don't trust them. Don't trust them. Seen them in action. Don't trust them. So with that in mind, any kind of revolution requires maximum saturation, maximum discipline, maximum stubbornness, if you will, to hold the line. 
do you see people really willing to be disciplined and hold the line? Do you? I see equivocators, left, right, center, top, bottom, people that always have that word, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. It's always a yeah, but. And everything after the but is bullshit, right? You have have to present a positive view of the future, of what it could be. You've got to demonstrate what it is you're fighting for. You've got to demonstrate what the value will be. And you've got to get people to believe. If they don't believe, they're not going to get committed. If they get, aren't committed, they're not going to get disciplined. If they don't get disciplined, any revolution will be crushed by the counter-revolution. So let me just explain to you one thing. People in the United States, for example, the haves, they're not giving up what they have. They're not. So you're left with only a couple options. The middle class below them that feels like they're just one business decision away from being a rich person too. They're not giving up what they have. You know, I I think you have to look that devil in the eye and realize that anger may get us through the door. And this is what my friend Jeff told me. Anger may get you through the door, but it's love that's going to sustain it once it's happening. And without people having a respect for one another and a desire to see all people prosperous and whatever that means, I'm thinking more along the lines of living life without worry, having health care taken care of for them, shelter, all that stuff. I think that leading a good life is a great way to measure what that is. But the problem is, is that everybody's got a different definition of what that great life involves. You know, people that are very creative and smart and scientific, maybe, maybe they don't want to be held back by someone else's small vision. But without the small vision people, you got no revolution. Without the big picture people, you got no plan. So they kind of need each other. I, I think that this is one of the hardest lessons that I'm learning in my process as I think through this, you know? How do you make people realize that change will breed something better for them? How do you make them realize that it's necessary? And how do you make them develop the kind of discipline to the cause that keeps them in the game, even in the face of counter-revolutionary pressures? It's, it's challenge, right? It's challenge. And um, it's not going to get there, period, folks. I mean, let's be crystal clear. It's not going to get there with the Democratic and the Republican Party. It's just not. They are literally the standard status quo bearers. That's what they are. 
and even the slightest changes they bring forward are the most minuscule, the most irrelevant. And because of means testing, folks, there's a reason for means testing for these policies. If they gave it to everyone, who would fight over it? But if we only give it to a certain amount of people, then we can always point at them as the takers. We can always say that our hard-earned tax dollars are funding their bad decisions. All those things always will just remain in place, and they're there for a reason. So I just, I'm very angry. I am. I'm not going to lie. I'm extremely angry. And deconstructing each of us, getting to our core. You know, in an unrelated thing, a friend of mine was talking about how they had taken mushrooms and that mushrooms stripped away all the social norms that they had been just enveloped in and allowed them to think of life without the taint, without the programming. I'm not here advocating for us all just to have one big old mushroom fest, although I wouldn't be against it either. But short of a major collapse, short of a major natural disaster, short of rebuilding after war, it's going to be very, very hard to win a class war with an underclass as it stands only willing to be angry, unwilling to plan, behaving as individuals, and constantly creating strife. It's going to be a real challenge. And this is not one of those definitive live streams where I'm giving you all the answers. I'm trying to give you the history to some extent and explain to you about the concept of counter-revolution. And how what you gain today, you've got to maintain tomorrow. And without discipline, and sadly, without a dictatorship of the proletariat or a benevolent dictator and central planning and things like that, there's always going to be factioning. There's always going to be splintering. And without the discipline required, the counter-revolution will always win. And this is why I'm struggling right now, because looking at history, not through CIA-tainted lenses, but through the direct words of those who fought Che Guevara and uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba, all these different individuals, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, even. North Korea originally wanting to reunite the whole Korean peninsula after Japanese imperialism. All these things devolve into bitter, brutal civil war. I don't think most people are ready for it. I don't think most people are planning for it or thinking about it. Most people, once they hear that, want to go right back to sleep. And they're willing to allow oppression to avoid being uncomfortable from a revolution. And because there's this pathetic mindset that talks about how you're obsessed with this or, 
oh my God, you're so whatever. And it's like this derogatory thing to talk about people that are committed to a cause. I know you know what I'm talking about. They kind of downplay those people who are obsessed with things. Oh my God, it's like 24 by so you can see them rolling their eyes. You're so cool. They like just mock it and shame it because the reality is they like their comforts. They don't want to be inconvenienced. You maintaining that decibel level at a hundred on this tack, this track, fighting constantly. Seems like, oh my God, they're like a one trick pony. Oh my God. They're obsessed and they mock it and they denigrate it. But it would take that. And it's going to take a lot of people that are like that to be able to be committed enough to first win the revolution and then maintain the revolution in the face of counter-revolutionary forces. And all the while, not being authoritarian, not being violent, not being this, not being that, all the other things. Because even today, as we look around, all of our history is tainted with the stories of the counter-revolution and why the oppression that occurs under totalitarian dictatorships, blah, 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 is never fully understood. When you are constantly living where people are trying to poison your drink, slip in the back door and slip a knife in your bed, put a snake in your shoe, kill you, assassinate you, whatever, That creates a totally challenging dynamic that I want each of you to think, how would you handle it? You've just led a revolution. You've got the people, your dictatorship of the proletariat, but you've got this counter-revolution. Are you going to kill them? Would you be willing to starve them? Would you be willing to behead them for having dissenting voices during the revolutionary period? How do you build a revolution while maintaining the ability for everyone to dissent and not just fall back to same old, same old that they're comfortable with? In this case, it would be capitalism and all the precarity that comes with neoliberalism. How do you stop that from happening? It's why I imagine so many people end up dying and these things as they try to revert back to the royal crown, as they try to destroy the gains of the revolution and do the counter-revolution. And you see this with the Dixiecrats. You see this with the Republican-minded people who don't want antebellum to be uprooted. You see this all around. So, again, I'm not walking away from with this podcast or this live stream with uh, a bunch of answers. It's more posing the question of how do you deal with counter-revolution? How do you build up discipline with people that don't want to be disciplined? And how do you take on a enormous establishment that has all the military weapons, all the other things that the communications apparatus is tapped, you name it. How do you take that on? And if you should win using tactics like Ho Chi Minh did in Vietnam, or you win in some other way, how do you maintain it? How do you maintain it? That's it, folks. That's me. That's, that's where I'm at right now. That is our first 
Rogue Scholar for the year 2023. Happy New Year, folks. And uh, I want to real quickly remind everyone, if you don't mind, please like and subscribe to our pages and to our YouTube channel. Beg you to follow us, help us out. Because once again, a simple revolutionary act of hitting like, hitting subscribe, sharing the video. Most people won't do that. I don't know why, but they won't. And as a result, let's say you have a thousand views out of those thousand views. Maybe you get a hundred likes, maybe you get five or six shares, brutal, brutal business. But I'm asking you all, if you like what you see, please help us share this, like it, subscribe. And also, obviously, we're a 501c3 and a 501c4, respectively. If you feel that real progressives or real progress in action are doing good work, please go to our website, realprogressives.org, go to donate, and please donate to the cause. And with that, I'm Steve Grumbine. I am the Rogue Scholar. Happy New Year. I'm going to take this down, and I'm going to add the out of here. I'm out of here. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support our efforts, please take a moment to subscribe and check out our other work on the Real Progress in Action YouTube channel and visit our sister organization's website at realprogressives.org. 